You're listening to an episode of Law Review Squared, the Law Review Review. It is 3 p.m. on Friday, January 15th, 2021. To give our listeners some context, our final exams are over, and we have received our grades now. I'm joined today by our panel, Shenley, Seth, and Joanne, who I'll ask to answer the question, if you had to eat one meal every day for the rest of your life, what would it be? Let's start with Shenley. Vietnamese pork chops. Okay. Seth? I'm a Doritos guy. I like those. I'm not sure that's a meal, but uh, okay. <laughs> Joanne? Japchae. Okay. And that's a Korean dish, I assume. And I'm Tony Fernando. I would choose tater tot casserole, uh, sometimes known as hot dish up in the Minnesota and Dakotas. While supplies last, you can still get a free Law Review Squared sticker by sending your mailing address to lexclava at gmail.com. That's L-E-X-C-L-A-V-A at gmail.com. We'll ship anywhere, even if you're overseas. And reminder that the opinions here are those of the panelists and do not represent the view of Penn State Dickinson Law, the panelists' present, former, or future employers, or any other entity. Contents of this recording do not constitute legal advice. And now I will turn the episode over to Seth. For our last podcast before we uh, start the spring semester, we chose to discuss an article by, from 1997 by Deborah Ware Post titled Power and the Morality of Grading, a case study and a few critical thoughts on grade normalization. It was published in the University of Missouri, Kansas City Law Review, uh, again back in 97. Post is a professor at Torah Law School in uh, Long Island, New York. The article is is interestingly written in that it's a sort of a like an ethnographic study of law school grading uh, that she tells through the lens of a push by Toro students in the 90s to see grading reform at their school and uh, resulting faculty discussions regarding grading policy. So grade normalization in general is a process that's used by schools of all, all types that uh, helps to create consistent results in grading. It's, it's essentially a curve. For example, if an exam is worth 100 points uh, and the mean score is 30 out of 100, without normalization, the average student then would fail the test pretty miserably. And this then tells educators that the exam was either too difficult or uh, you know, the, the material wasn't taught effectively enough or both or something else. Uh, so instead of failing almost everyone in the class, per the school's policy, which without grade normalization, that would be 30 out of 100. Um, that 30% becomes a C or a B or whatever the school decides to curve it to. So the effects of this process is essentially that the student's performance is measured in relation to each other, not necessarily in relation to the test itself. So one theme we've throughout this article is of the power um, that professors hold over students by way of assigning grades and the, the power that administrators hold over grading procedures. The author essentially argues that strict grading policies can essentially limit uh, a student's life experiences by closing doors to them. Is this a fair statement? Uh, is there a better metric to measure academic performance in its relation to a student's anticipated professional performance? I will go to uh, Tony on that one. Well, I... I did think the article was interesting in the way that uh, she described this and the description of how the faculty was reacting to different proposals to change the way that the grades were being curved. I do think that your description is correct that um, curving the grades causes the students to be ranked relative to each other rather than the objective mastery of the material. So, like, if 
everybody in the class had gotten a 95, you know, even those people would be getting C's or D's, you know, with a score of 90, um, you know, they're still getting those C's or D's. Um, and it is a little bit weird. Um, it, it does mean that, you know, if, well, in my case, I got a B minus in torts. Um, that doesn't tell you that I had like an 80% understanding of torts because we don't know how the rest of the class did in that class. So, um, you know, is there a better metric to measure academic performance? Maybe, but it does require there to be something objective to be measuring against also. And that's kind of difficult in this field uh, in comparison to something like physics or, or you know, engineering, where there is a right, an objective right answer on some of these things. Stanley, do you have uh, any input on that one? Yeah, um, I really like this article. I thought that it was, was kind of like a good article to kind of read after the semester and after grades came out. Um, it definitely kind of made me reevaluate how I think about grading in the faculty and the overall process in general. Um, I feel like, I mean, to answer the question that you're asking, I don't know what, what a different metric would be to measure students because I think that, um, especially for first year students, you know, like we're all really learning the foundation and doctrinal classes and we're all, you know, in, in these classes together. Um, and so, you know, like Tony was saying, you know, we really are competing against each other and our own knowledge. Um, and I think that if you were to change that or try to make it more fair and equitable, it would definitely be, um, it would require more manpower from the school and administration. Um, and I mean, you think about how much law school costs and you're like, well, maybe something like that would be worth it. But until I think, um, more schools kind of take that approach. I think it'll continue to be the way that it is. I do know that there, like you know, there are some T14 schools that don't have grades. You know, they are just strictly pass fail, and they went that route to kind of uh, take away the toxicity of law school and how competitive it it is. But then, I think just in the spirit of you know lawyers and law students and just the type of personality that you know this uh, population has, I do think kind of it is like inherently competitive. Um, so I don't really know what, what you would, what kind of other metric you would use to kind of, um, you know, measure where someone's understanding is of the information. Joanne, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, so as a high school student, I don't have any experience with the curve that you guys have, but I will give my input on it. Um, because honestly, I I understand the needing it to be more competitive, but um, like Tony said in the beginning, even if the entire class gets a 95, some of those students are still going to get C's and D's with that 95. So it's not really measuring like what they no, it's just giving them a grade because they have to have that grade, which I personally don't agree with. But as Shinley said, I have no clue what kind of metric you could use to keep the competitiveness and still keep it fair because, you know, uh, from what I've heard about law school, it has to be competitive. There's these people are out there defending our, you know, our walls. <laughs> so I, I don't know what kind of system 
we should use, but I don't think the grading curve as it is should be the one. So moving on to the second question, the author in the uh, paper often brought up that faculty politics and how, especially in 97, Toro faculty was pretty wary of changing the grading policy and the curve and believe that uh, low grades were largely a reflection of the student's body, uh, student body's laziness and deficiencies in, you know, learning the law, I suppose, not necessarily the grading policies themselves. And uh, the author, she, she likened this to like the language of societal oppression and how those at the top of an oppressive hierarchy sort of chalk the failures up of those below them to strictly personal flaws of the people or of the population rather than the system itself in which they run and operate. So what do you make of this point that, um, um, Shenley, you have any thoughts? Um, yeah, kind of my thoughts about this was, um, I thought the points that she brought up in the paper were valid and I, you know, I definitely, you know, can see how there could be a correlation, um, you know, based on, upon those at the top, you know, performing really well, um, just, you know, not so much from in law school, but because um, these people, these individuals have um, had educational access and, I mean, just over the course of their lives, they've, they've had the privilege of going to, you know, maybe really good schools and not having to work a job or, you know, being able to focus and dedicate all their time to study and being able to pay for, you know, academic coaches and tutors. And that the reality is, is that that's not something that's accessible to a large majority of the population. Um, so, you know, just when people have that type of access, I think that they forget that that is not something that is the norm across the board, um, that it really is a privilege and it is a privilege to put them in a more competitive position. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I kind of struggle with the fact that the professors were saying that those people who and, and that, that one professor who was giving out, you know, C, uh, D's and F's like readily, how he was just like, well, you know, obviously these people didn't know the content. They got the, the grade that they deserve. And I, that was kind of a struggle for me because like no one shows up to law school and just says, hey, let me in. Like you have to work in order to even get in there. And that's, you know, preparing for the LSAT, making sure you have good grades, uh, the admissions process. So. I mean, maybe there were people who didn't put in the work and, you know, didn't and, and underperformed in the class, but it could have been maybe people didn't understand the content. And this professor may have had a, a reputation that kind of preceded itself. And maybe people didn't feel comfortable going to the office hours to try to, you know, better understand the content. I don't know. I mean, I really did like in the article how um, the author had mentioned that maybe if a professor gives out a certain amount of grades, like they should be measured on, on their teaching capabilities because you know if, if so many people are not doing well then obviously there's some type of disconnect and I think that our school does give us maybe that opportunity when we were given the, the questionnaires to put you know respond to with our professors but you know how those are used and you know what what use they actually if they're used for tangible measures for the faculty to improve I don't know but um yeah I mean I, I really don't know if the societal oppression or, you know, what, I mean, I think it's valid, but I, I, don't, I don't really know the answer to that. It's my answer. Joanne, any thoughts? Um, so I think there is a problem, like the hierarchy, because as Shinley said, like a lot of the top class, some of them could have been, you know, could have gone to like 
really, really nice schools and they had the time and money and um, everything growing up that they never had to like share their time with anything else. They could devote it all to school, studying for law school and college, whereas not everyone has that, you know, they don't have that privilege. Um, and so they have to have jobs, but they can still put in so much effort and not be as good yet as some of the top students. And that it can't be a measure of laziness because, you know, like Shinley said, you have to work really hard to get into law school. You already have to get out of high school with good grades so that you can get into a good university and then you have to stay at the top of your class for that and then you have to study for the LSAT and then you get in and you have to put in so much work because you know that that's going to be such an important job when you get that it lawyers have to put in a lot if they want to pass the bar I mean so I don't think you could chalk that up to being lazy if you're at the bottom of your class. And like she said about um, professors who give um, lower grades, I know, like I said, once again, I'm still in high school, but my schools have always sent us like surveys on like our teachers every once in a while, like, are you actually learning? Is there time? Is there uh, too much work or something? do you think your teacher is teaching you and are they being fair? And I think a lot of that, like Shinley said, if a professor is steadily giving out those low grades, is it really on the class, especially if in all their other classes, they're getting higher grades? There, there has to be something up with that class. So I think there is something with the hierarchy there and, students do who have had that privilege uh try and you know they forget that like Shinley said they forget that they had that privilege and that it was a privilege and not just something everybody had and then because they had that privilege and they don't understand they blame lower students for like saying they're lazy and I disagree with that method of going but i know that it happens johnny what do you take on uh on the failures of the students so uh shenley and joanne both brought up teaching evaluations um and that you know a, a faculty member who is giving out a lot of bad grades might maybe their evaluation should be looked at more the only problem with that is that teaching evaluations are notoriously bad at capturing the teaching performance of the teacher and that in many cases um, what a teaching evaluation is actually telling you is what race the professor is what sex the professor is and whether or not they're they're an attractive member of that sex um, and that's been statistically shown um, from a number of studies i do agree however that you know I really like the idea that the author had that, um, and she didn't develop it too far, that, you know, law students are adults. By the time you get into law school, you already have a bachelor's degree. And um, 
it may not even be necessary to provide grades at all for benefit of the student that as an adult you have a a right to intellectual self-determination when we're talking about protecting the public that you're ultimately going to be served you still have to pass that bar exam and you know it's i think it's been shown that your law school grades don't predict accurately whether or not you're going to pass the bar exam I do also think that your your question was right and that you're picking up and Shanley mentioned this also and Joanne to some extent. Um, you know, there is a tendency for people who have privilege to not recognize it. And there's a tendency for people who have done something to assume that the people coming after them should do the same thing um, on entering into a career. So this may just be one of those those things where you have that type of, of kind of baked in the system says that we have to have grades, so we're going to have grades, and this is the way it's going to be, and we're going to fail some percentage of the people who we offered admission to. They got through that that strenuous admission process, and we thought that they would be successful here, and maybe they were, but you know we have to cut 7.5% of them each semester, or however it ultimately ends up doing. Now, I will say, I, I and I'm grateful that I don't think Dickinson Law operates that way. I don't think our curve is set up to force failures. Um, you know, I, I assume that if you really do fail, you, they'll fail you. I think that's in the, the grading policies that they can do that. But, it, you know, the, the assumption here is not that, well, we offered admission to 84 people and, you know, 15 of them, doesn't matter, you know, the lowest performing 15 we're just going to get rid of. We, we don't do that here. So, I mean, I, I like that about our school. What about um, what about Professor Tenure? Um, is that I mean, I'm not really well versed in the sort of back end procedures of academia, but um, Professor Tenure, do you think that's good or, or bad when it comes to uh, teaching styles and, and, and holding on to forcibly holding on to professors who may um, either may not be that great or maybe, uh, you know, past their their prime? Yeah, I really do think colleges should really think rethink professor tenure um, because again, like it just seems like once the professor or even in schools, like once a teacher gets tenure, you know, they're pretty much safe in their position. And um, it, it seems at that point, like I, I'm not going to say that this applies to everyone, but they could definitely come up and say it was some very problematic things. And then there's really no recourse that the school has because they are protected by their job. I mean, by, by the cover of their tenure. And um, I think that that should be reevaluated. I mean, I'm, I'm always on the side of labor, uh, but I think in this case, like there needs to be, I mean, a, a teacher should be protected by, by under their vocation, but there also should be some oversight that the administration has, um, you know, to deal with professors who, again, are, you know, might be problematic or, you know, just have checked out and are not engaged in the studies anymore. I think, Shenley's right with caveats. Um, I think that when you get rid of tenure, you open the door to large donors, the Koch brothers, for example, um, making donations to the law to say the law school, and then saying that all all professors need to teach from conservative bias. Or, I, you know, I suppose the other side would be George Soros, and then but all teachers must teach from a liberal bias. And, Neither of those scenarios would be positive. Um, tenure protects against that. However, I don't know how well it does protect against that, really, uh, in, in the long run. And like Shanley said, it does uh, allow for people to have some very strange ideas that can't be 
addressed or, you know, by the administration. This is, you know, I, I really like Dickinson Law and I trust our administration, but I have been to many other universities and I don't necessarily trust administrations at universities general, generally. So I think with like tenure and stuff, so, um, you know, gives that professor or whatever a permanent spot. But I think along down the line, you have to evaluate again and say, did we make the right choice and not just let it go because you've already given them that tenure? Like, you've got to go, are they still sticking to what they said they were going to in the beginning? Or have they taken and started to abuse that power that they know they're not going to, that they're not going to be going anywhere? Um, So... I think that's some of the problem with that. But the competitive nature of law school, is that beneficial to students in that it kind of reflects the professional world where you are having to be competitive and, you know, the legal field is in, is, um, you know, an adversarial system largely, or does it hinder students' ability to learn in some way? Jenny? I hate the competitive nature of it. I don't think that that is a surprise. I think I've said that several times. I think it's toxic. I think it's, I mean, and not just law school, just, I mean, because again, like we're competing against each other in school. And then when we get out, we're competing against each other in the workforce. And I just really think that that is uh, not a fulfilling way to live your life because uh, again, I think it's just toxic and I don't like it. So I actually found um, grades to be really frustrating um, after this first semester. And partly because it is buying into this competitive concept. But I don't feel like I'm competing against Seth or competing against Shenley or any of the other people that we've, we've had on here. I feel like, um, as an intellectual, I feel more like an athlete, right? I'm always trying to better my own personal records. I'm trying to do better than I did last time each time I try and do something. But these grades don't tell me how well I did at that. They only tell me how well I did relative to Seth and relative to Shenley. And that's not useful information to me, um, unless we have some kind of measure of how well the class did overall, and we don't. Um, you know, I don't know that the academia and academic setting needs to necessarily reflect the competitive professional world. I also don't know that, I mean, I've been in the workforce for 20 years, and I don't feel like the real workforce is as competitive as it's sometimes portrayed um, either. So, um, you know, I, if the competitiveness could be dialed down, I, I think that would be a good thing. And again, uh, maybe I don't need to say this eight times during the course of the episode, but I really like the way our school handles some of this because I don't feel like I'm, I'm locked in moral competition with you guys. Um, whereas I suspect that at other schools I might. <laughs> I agree, Tony. And I think that that is a good point to raise that. I mean, I think this Dickinson tries to be really inclusive and try to cut back on the negative toxicity of law school. And I do appreciate that because even just waiting for grades was stressful enough. I can't imagine waiting for grades and with the potential that, you know, with a school that does academically dismiss students like that has to be even, you know, more stress that, you know, than is necessary. I don't know why I feel necessary to say this every single time, but once again, I'm in high school, so I don't know 
how competitive the world really is. I just got to the age where I could get a job, um, but I couldn't, you know, because of COVID. So I don't know the competitive nature of the workforce yet. Um, But I will say that in taking all the AP courses that I've taken, I will say that they feel more competitive than any of my other classes I've ever taken. Because while we don't do like an actual curve curve, um, we do basically know everybody else's grade. And you do feel like you're competing against them because, you know, you're just like, oh, well, I have to get a better grade than I have because I need to be on par with the top percentages of class. And I know that in and of itself feels so toxic and competitiveness, like in the sense of schooling, just I, I hate it so much. Like Shinley said, like, I hate competition like that. I get in sports. I understand sports, but with academia, like why can't two people be just as smart as each other? Why does one always have to be like portrayed as less smart and that's the problem with the competitiveness because somebody is always going to be less than the top person why can't there be two top people i'm actually going to kind of walk a middle line here i i'm a very competitive person and i heard that a lot over christmas break while we were playing board games and um i i think it i like being pushed via competition to kind of be better um but it does kind of have like a double-edged sword to me personally in the academic field because i thinking back to like college i I think i did best when i when i was like not thinking about how well i was doing instead just focusing on learning the material so i I think uh yeah I'm i'm a little half and half on that one but moving on um and piggybacking off the last question in our discussion in the episode on honor codes especially Um, The author explains that Toro had eventually adopted a policy that had allowed students to adopt uh, or to drop a a grade that was a C minus or below. So C minus, you know, D, F, and they would be able to drop that from their GPA grade calculation for that semester, but then they would be expected to retake that class. I don't know if it was in the next immediate semester or just sometime in the future, but uh, the faculty thought that was a pretty reasonable concession to make and to help students, especially in the job market. Long Island, they would be competing probably with NYU and, and Columbia. And so while other students with higher GPAs were, well, let me go back. So so what was happening, though, is that they found that the, the students that should have been using the option, the ones that were uh, had, had low GPAs that could have benefited from using the option were were by and large either not or they were dropping out. And instead, the students with the higher GPAs that um, didn't necessarily need to use the option were using it strategically in that they would they would drop their lowest grade and then you know their GPA for that term would be elevated a little bit. And then the next semester, when they took five more classes or whatever, they wouldn't retake that class. So then that low grade would show back up on their transcript. But now that that low GPA would be diluted by, you know, five more, 10 more classes, whatever uh, the next semester or two brought. So, uh, and this goes back to the competitive nature of law school. Does it encourage students to uh, 
to try to find loopholes in an attempt to gain an edge in some way. And um, how impressed were you with those students uh, lawyering? I'm sorry, I'll, uh, whoever wants to take it. Uh, Shelly, you want to go ahead? Uh, sure. Um, I thought that it, it seemed like a reasonable policy from the school to allow students who, um, you know, didn't do so well in the class a chance to cure their grades. But it seemed like, you know, in theory it worked out, but in practice it didn't because, again, like those students were the ones who ended up dropping out anyway. And students who were, you know, kind of just maybe who got a B minus and weren't happy with their grades were able to game the system. Um, I, I don't, I mean, I th again, I think the, I, I will give them um, kudos for the effort to try to, you know, help these students who needed it. But um, I think that maybe it should have been only open through something to the students who needed it, like maybe through um, academic services or, you know, like have them work directly with the students who had the lowest GPA instead of having it open to everyone but then you kind of get into the you know whether or not that would be fair and so um the, i think the only way to to do it would be not to have the option open because people were obviously using it you know to their own advantage and it didn't work out as it was intended to joanne any thoughts uh yeah i'll agree that i feel like it in theory it was great but in practice it obviously didn't go too well and like Shinley said, there's not too much option on what to do, <laughs> option, uh, other than to drop the option. Um, just because, I guess, I can't say I know what was going on through those kids that dropped, but the kids with higher grades, they have one class that starts to sink a little bit, and they're just like, oh, well, all my other grades are great, so let me not focus on this class as much right now because I can retake it. And then that like helps them. They find that little loophole. And I, you know, law is kind of about some loopholes, you know, with like lawyers, they're like finding ways to defend their client or whatever. Um, but I think trying to get ahead using a system that's meant to help people who actually need help is kind of, sleazy and i think that getting rid of the option was really the only real way to go just because if studies showed that like yeah the people that would have used it had dropped out anyways why would we keep it because that's just not really helping the rest of the world if the if we know that the students that were having higher grades went ahead and took advantage of that and it's not just like they're they're not taking advantage of something that would just help them they're like misusing it is how i feel and i think that doesn't show great character so i feel like maybe the option kind of got into people's heads and kind of misguided their character tony i do think that there's two separate questions here um you know, the intent of the option was to help the people who needed help, but those people were actually dropping out. And so that that indicates that the option needed to be re rethought. Um, you know, maybe that coordinating it through academic services or students, student support or something like that to make sure that they did go on and take the class that they were supposed to take rather than, you know, just temporarily removing it from their transcripts. Uh, 
<clears throat> would have made it work better. The other problem that people were gaming the system, um, that to me is one of those, I don't care. People will game any system and you have to make a decision when you're designing systems that affect a lot of people. You know, there will be people who kind of get away with things. There will be people who freeload. Um, if we're sending out stimulus checks, some of those people don't need those stimulus checks, but it's better to help everybody and get that money out there rather than to devise means testing and, and things that will slow down the, the velocity of getting it out and it will ultimately prevent people from getting the help that they need. Um, so... I do think that under the, under the scenario that was presented, you know, that option needed to be rethought so that it would better help the people who needed help. Um, but I, I, I don't get worked up over people gaming the system um, for their own advantage. And then finally, the big question, grading. Is it moral? No. I'll just, no, I'll just open that up to everybody. I, I will say that I feel like the way that... Americans grade things, you know, where the A, B, C, D, F, you either, you're either a so-called smart student or you're lacking. Uh, and I feel like that's just, I don't know really how to put it, but it's so wrong the way we grade because, so I talked with um, Tony about this last night. I feel like if we had a better grading system, like, it would be so much better because high school and whatnot, it's not grading what you've learned. It's grading what you have memorized in order to pass a test. You're not actually working to understand and learn the material. You're working to memorize because you know that there's a test coming up that's going to determine whether or not you pass that school. So you're like, all right, let me memorize this take the test and then I'm done. And that's how grades are determined. And I don't think that really determines how smart a person is because, you know, there's going to be topics where some people just don't grasp as well. And, you know, standardized testing, not everyone can take a test in the same amount of time. And, you know, so they rush and that doesn't mean that they're not smart enough. That doesn't mean that they don't know the material that they're taking. It just means that they learn and take tests differently than other people. But there's that standardization um, for grading that, you know, hinders the abilities of so many people. Like, I know I am a horrible tester. I do well on all my school assignments because I have time, I can do things. And then when I get into like big tests or something, I get B's or C's because, you know, it's so stressful because, all right, you've got 75 minutes to take this test. It's this many questions on these topics and you have to know everything about these topics. Quick, fast, go. And then that's going to make up 70% of your grade at the end of the semester. That's how grading works. And I don't think that's very logical at all. And it's not very moral. It, that's what I think. Tony? You know, this is one of those, I think, I don't know if grading is moral or not. I'm not sure that every aspect of life has to be moral or immoral. Um, I do think, however, that grading is not objective. 
and we pretend that it is sometimes. Uh, I don't think that grading is necessarily predictive of how you're going to do with the rest of your life. And I think we pretend it is sometimes. Um, I really wish uh, the author had had expanded more on that idea that an adult has some kind of inherent right to self-determination, intellectual self-determination. That may have been a bridge too far for a grading discussion. Jenny? Um, I don't know if it's moral or not. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like it's, um, you know, obviously it's necessary. So, you know, you get good grades in law school and then you, with that's in preparation of the bar and you pass the bar and then you're licensed to practice. But um, one thing that I have no, I've come to realize, I mean, as a non-traditional student, I can say with confidence that I'm not my grades and I don't, you know, have to, you know, I am concerned. I want to get good grades, obviously, but I know that I have a lot more experience and other credentials that I bring to the table for an employer. And that's, you know, kind of what I've always been focused on from the beginning of the semester. Um, but, you know, with that said, I do have talked to a lot of uh, attorneys who are practicing who who admit that they'll say, well, my grades weren't good, um, but I still, I, I went on to be a successful attorney. Um, someone who is a mentor to me, you know, she was on academic probation. I feel like every semester that she was in law school, but she's an experienced and successful litigator today. So I don't know if grades are moral or not, but I do feel like, you know, obviously the schools have to give them out for some reason. Again, I don't know how else they would measure how someone else is doing, but I think what, and I do think the school has tried to do this. They had a, um, I don't know if it was, I think it was academic success. They had a meeting just this week talking about, you know, what you can do after grades and kind of how you can pick yourself up. Um, and I really think that maybe that's something that schools should push, like not, you know, like obviously there's the, the curve and there's only going to be so many people get a certain grade, but the grades aren't everything. There are, there are other things that you can, you know, kind of your softs that you can develop to make you a more marketable candidate once you do enter into the workforce. I agree. And how are you folks feeling about uh, inching closer after this first semester in the books to becoming an attorney and more importantly, taking the bar? I'll just open it up. I'm not looking forward to the bar because just waiting three weeks for grades was stressful enough. Like thinking about the results from the bar, I think is like two months or something like that. That That is just like so stressful. Um, and then also, I'm also kind of concerned about um, considering that we are in a pandemic and we took our exams remotely and they were open book, I'm kind of concerned of how that will, you know, because I think a lot of you get muscle memory from having to remember a lot of things and you didn't necessarily have to depend on memory because we were able to lean on our notes and um, outlines a little bit more. So I'm kind of worried about how that will um, equate to my bar preparation. but. Um, Someone told me that it doesn't matter when you take the bar, you learn everything over anyway. So I, I guess there's that. But I'm looking forward to being done with law school is what I should say. <laughs> I agree with that. I am um, the open book thing. I was worried because like, I think back and I feel like just at the top of my mind, I, I don't I'm not recalling as, as deeply into these different like legal doctrines or whatever as I as I might have hoped um, or maybe as I thought you should if I were to sit back and memorize everything. Um, but then again, you know, first semester of law school, I've never done this before. So maybe that's not how it goes. Tony. The thing is that the, the bar exam is sort of this weird 
thing at the end of law school. And from what I've been hearing, you end up having to study for it, like almost as if you hadn't attended law school at, at all. Um, so I'm not enormously worried about the bar exam. Uh, Shenley did bring up a good point, though, that we are taking everything remotely in open book. And, and, and we do have that big closed book in-person test looming in our futures. Um, I don't know as far as, you know, the question was, how comfortable are you about inching closer to becoming a lawyer? I, I'll say, I, I will say that I've been rattled by the way this country went in the last say six months or so and some of the things that have happened and I'm not entirely sure that I'm in the right place. Um, but that doesn't mean that I have an alternate course of action planned out. So that's, that's a subject for a totally different podcast. Joanne, how are you feeling about uh, coming closer to going to college? <laughs> yeah, I thought you were, Assuming you're going to college, I guess. I thought you were going to say graduating. I was like, Hmm. Yes. I've been in law school for about seven years now. Um, can't wait for it to be over. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I've applied to several schools. I'm waiting for a couple back. I've gotten accepted into a couple. Honestly, because of COVID, high school is really, really hard with everything that's going on. Um, so I think like every teen out there can relate like, oh my goodness, you got to get up for Zoom, and then if you're going back to high, if you're going back into the school, um, like in person, like I am next week, I'm going back um, after being online for the last month and a half or so. It's really, really scary, I think, because, you know, all of a sudden last year was my junior year. Um, it got cut off. And then I was online and, you know, we were just getting used to all the online. And then I came back in person for hybrid school, um, which was, I guess, less stressful. But honestly, I cannot wait for high school to be over, even without COVID. I am tired of it. I don't like kids. I, I don't like teenagers. I found that I get along with people older than me um way better um so i can't wait until i get to go to college and like interact with people who are older than me just because you know teenagers aren't mature at all even when we first go to college we're not mature at all so i just want to be able to have conversations with mature people that's what i'm most excited about <laughs> okay and with that we're about out of time thanks again to our panel seth Shanley and Joanne. Reminder, you can find a link to the article discussed by going to lawreviewsquare.com and looking at the episode notes. Let us know what topics you'd like us to consider by twittering suggestions to at squared law. Please like, follow, subscribe, or give us a rating wherever you found this podcast. Audio post-processing by Muhammad Salim. Podcast adjourned.